right now I'm a PRN, which is fancy medical lingo for as needed at Presbyterian. I'm a psychiatrist locally and had the pleasure of sitting on the echo unit before when I was at University of New Mexico. So like I said, we're going to talk about normal sleep first, these first few sets of slides. Essentially what sleep is and what it, we look at it um, in terms of its structure medically how our needs for sleep change throughout life, because obviously what you did as an infant is not what you're going to do when you're old. And then proper sleep hygiene, which is fancy words for how to sleep well. Okay. So what mediates sleep? Well, we really have two um, major systems that really help us um, to sleep a normal period of time. If you think about uh, most daytime mammals or non-nocturnal mammals, you wonder why it is that we sleep at night and stay up during the day. Well, this is why. We have something called the circadian rhythm, um, circadian coming from the word about a day, and it's a biological process, really, um, that oscillates uh, for about 24 hours. So it's a pacemaker-like mechanism in our brain um, that, that controls the sleeping and waking states. This becomes established within the brain the first few months of life. If anybody in the room or on the network has an infant at home, I'm really sorry, um, but their brain is growing and you will eventually have a baby that sleeps. Um, but circadian rhythm also controls a couple of other daily fluctuations in our biological processes, and that includes our body temperature, our blood pressure, and then release of hormones too. Um, because of our circadian rhythm, it makes our desire for sleep strongest between midnight and dawn, and then to a lesser extent in the afternoon too. So we we'll always talk about that post-lunch nap time. Please don't do that during this lecture. You'll hurt my feelings, but it, if you want to, just blame it on your circadian rhythm. Um, you know, so most of us, most Americans, sleep during the night dictated by this. Of course, uh, if you are an officer who's working night shifts, you'll have a separate set of issues, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, but at least 60% of us nap on a daily basis, too. So um, I'm one, I'm a big you know, nap fan. Um, when we get into the sleep hygiene portion of this, we'll talk about ways that you can set up your night so that you sleep well, even if you do like napping during the day. And then in societies where siestas, or maybe taking a you know, break from the day to sleep one to two hours, is a, a, a norm. People respond you know, by, by um, sleeping less at night. Okay? So that's what circadian rhythm is. The second sleep drive um, is really a homeostatic one, right? And it's, and it's um, mediated by a specific chemical called adenosine. So adenosine accumulates throughout the day in our brain, and it works on the sleep centers of the brain to cause sleepiness. If anybody's ever wondered how caffeine works? It's this chemical. Caffeine blocks adenosine. That's what makes us feel awake. And so you have both the adenosine-driven homeostatic drive and then your circadian rhythm. And the interaction between the two of those really determines when we wake up, when we fall asleep, and how awake we feel. Question. Sure. Uh, ben Melinda's APD asking for a friend. How long can you block that with caffeine? It's a really good question. So we'll talk about caffeine and how much caffeine is in different products and um, what the FDA says. This is too much. Okay. Um, so in the 1970s, we um, scientists really found out where this where this center was kind of located in the brain. It's in this fancy part called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And we found that in rodents. I always feel so bad about the 
my studies that we do, but it's a cluster of cells that's in the hypothalamus in the brain. And it really, it sits next to an area that regulates uh, a lot of things related to sleep, obviously, um, but then also, also things like appetite and other biological states. So if we damage that, because scientists, they like to do that, right? We find it and we damage it and see what happens. That sleep-wake cycle will completely disappear. And, um, you, you know, you lose that ability to regulate yourself that way. Um, and so we, we think about things that are influential in terms of um, our sleep drive and circadian drive. You can probably come up with a number of them. We've already told you about a couple of them, one being caffeine. Um, but light, thoughts, and the production of melatonin are some other things, too. So about how, on average, how much do you think an adult sleeps? Six hours. Close. Any other guesses? Before or after kids. <laughs> Definitely, like, without shelter and present. Oh, eight. Yeah, so it's in between there. It's seven point five. Okay. Um, how about you? How about cats? We think cats. Oh. Sixteen to twenty. Yeah, fifteen. Yeah. How about bats? A nocturnal animal. A Christian Bale or? <laughs> Not that Batman. <laughs> bats sleep twenty. Yeah, and horses sleep three. So it varies among mammals too. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the stages of sleep. Um, what you have here is you know, kind of a, a picture describing the awake state or, or showing, demonstrating the awake state versus all of these stages. Now, this is an old slide. We no longer have stage four. It's been condensed with stage three. Um, so we have awake, uh, what we call REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, and then um, stage one, which is the lightest stage of sleep, two, and then three and four, like I said, are, have been combined uh, to be three. Um, and so this is basically showing you over a period of an evening where you vacillate uh, for someone who doesn't have a, a problem with insomnia, where a, a you know, normal functioning human brain, what that would look like. Okay? So we spend about 20 to 25% of our time in rapid eye movement sleep. Um, rapid eye movement sleep is um, the time that it's the most restorative period of time for our brain. That's one where Consolidating memories, um, that's also when we're dreaming. Um, so in that consolidation of memory, sometimes our brain comes up with strange you know, sorts of stories of what we might have experienced in the past or present. So some people can you know, present to a physician feeling like they only are in rapid eye movement, but that's of course the time that you're mostly remembering. Stage one and stage two are lighter uh, forms, and sometimes you might wake yourself up out of stage one by jolting awake with um, jerks, hypno, you know, hypnopathic or hypnogogic jerks, and we'll talk about those in a minute. And then again, stage three is the steeper stage. Um, people who suffer from schizophrenia oftentimes will lack the short bursts of electrical activity that you see during sleep in a normal hypnogram. Um, you can also see changes for most of the, the you know, the serious mental illnesses that we treat. Um, uh, you can see changes on their hypnograms. Um, but this kind of highlights a couple of them. Um, sleep specialists call the non-rapid eye movement, so it, it, you know, it gets further categorized into rapid eye movement sleep and non-rapid eye movement sleep. And sleep specialists call that an idling brain in a movable body. And you'll see why. Okay. Some of the insomnias, you'll see why people can have movement issues even though they're asleep. That's a quick question. Sure. Now it says people with bipolar disorder wake more and often, awake more often, and 
have less than is that is that because they don't sleep or is it because of the disorder i don't know if it's well known right or is it a medication effects it's probably multi multi multifactorial i just know that one person that i used to uh, assist when she lost sleep when she there was some stressor in her life that caused her to lose sleep she would sometimes be thrown into a manic episode oh absolutely and i wasn't sure at the time is it because you're lacking sleep or is it because of the stressor or both but so it was interesting to see that it is and so sleep hygiene for somebody who lives with bipolar disorder is extremely important it seems like a small thing but um, you know, both as a, a symptom of you know, their of their affective symptoms worsening, but also as a preventative measure. Um, even when we have patients who live with bipolar disorder who are traveling to Europe or Asia, and you know, having that large of a, a time change, they have to be very, very careful to not destabilize in terms of their affects. That's a great question. Good point. Um, and pertinent to our uh, region, we think about methamphetamine and how that impacts the brain. Um, most psychostimulants impair our brain's ability to obtain rapid eye movement sleep, almost to the point where they're not ever getting rapid eye movement sleep. So, you know, both in terms of what that does to the brain, not having a restorative sleep period, um, but then when somebody is newly sober from methamphetamine, the most, um, the most disconcerting symptom that they complain about is really bothersome vivid nightmares. Um, and this is why, because they finally are allowing their brain that rapid eye movement sleep, and that's called rapid eye movement um, sleep rebound. So vivid nightmares happening, and oftentimes people think, oh, that's because I haven't had my drug, or I'll just use meth to help that, and then inadvertently that cycle continues for them. So um, any questions about this? Then what is APD? Can you have uh, REM sleep without dreaming? So. It depends on, so, so not necessarily, right? Like if you wake up every morning, you might not remember what you dreamed the night before, what you dreamt the night before. Um, and, and a lot of people have that experience where they'll, they'll wake up and a loved one will say, oh, like, how did you sleep? What did you dream of? And, and some people will never be able to come up with content. Other people have a lot of content and have content all the time. So it's the reliability of our memory um, and how we dreamt or not, um, it's really, really subjective. Right? There's no way for us to see. We can see when someone's in rapid eye movement sleep, but we have no way to know if they're technically but that is the, that is the period of time that we have experienced dreams and memory consolidation. Yeah. That's a good question. Any other questions? Okay, let's keep going. So this is a different way of looking at it. Um, and the way that we determine the stages of where we're going from what we call you know, stage one, all the, all the way to three, is looking at specific um, markers on the, the hypnogram, okay? So sleep latency, you'll hear me use this term a little bit, is the time that we take to fall asleep. Some people, especially when you're sleep deprived, that time frame is very, very small. We talk about those people who, the minute they hit their head hits the bed, the pillow, they fall asleep, right? It's a bit of a sign of sleep deprivation. And there's other people who they'll, they'll lay down and for whatever reason, they don't fall asleep for an hour. So we you know, can try to determine someone's sleep hygiene based off of sleep latency. Um, that quiet period of time when you're laying down, your eyes are closed, but you're not asleep, is characterized by alpha waves seen on the hypnogram. Okay. So stage one, again, that light sleep, that sensation of falling can be very common. Anybody in the room ever experienced that? Yeah, probably everybody here. 
Um, and then hallucinations are sleep talking anger, and this is completely normal. So we talked all about the pathological hallucinations yesterday in, um, in our, our CIT training, um, but this is completely normal, okay? So I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this. We have a loved one that falls asleep and then says some real strange stuff. Mom does this a lot. Um, Stage two is characterized by what we call sleep spindles or K-complexes. Again, I'll show you it in the brain. I'll show you, show you what these things are. But the brain waves, brain waves start to slow down. And this is when our body temperature and um, heart rate decrease as well. And then stage three is characterized by delta slow waves. This is where, again, our body repairs itself. But, but it's not, hit, you know, you're not um, paralyzed. So sleepwalking and night terrors can occur at this point. And rapid eye movement again, that's where vivid dreaming occurs, and but the body is motionless, or should be. So this is what this looks like. Not the prettiest way to look, but if this is when you get a sleep study, this is what you would look like. So you got all sorts of you know wires and bits on you. Um, and this is what a sleep doctor would be looking out to the to the right here. So awake, you see these beta waves. Um, drowsy, but your eyes closed, alpha waves, and then the various stages. Um, it's pretty cool looking. Right, so how does this change throughout life? This picture kind of shows you the amount of time that we are awake, and that's in red. Um, the lighter blue, which is slow wave sleep, and then the purple color and rapid eye movement. So you see newborns, it feels like they're awake a lot more than that. <laughs> it's just because they sleep in a very different pattern. But they spend a lot of time in rapid eye movement. And then children spend more time in slow wave sleep compared to adults. Um, and this is really, you know, the, the, the thought is that the intensity of that electrical activity is linked to how well they can learn. You see how, how much more they are awake. Um, and then moving on to teenagers, they're, they're awake a lot, I mean a lot, but um, they require a lot more sleep. And the lack of that slow wave sleep can really hamper their And then as we become adults, um, we're awake a lot more and we have loss of our great gray matter from the medial you know, prefrontal cortex. Um, we may have less ability to lay down new memories and memory consolidation, which is why learning a foreign language is always harder in an adult. Um, you know, older adults spend about 20% of their time in rapid eye movement, and I'm talking you know, the geriatric population. I apologize if I'm calling anybody geriatric, but from a medical perspective, it's 65 and over. Um, you know, they, they have about 5% of deep sleep, but falling asleep takes longer, and they have a shallow quality of sleep, so it results in a lot of deep, you know, nighttime awakening. Um, but thanks to napping, usually they can, you know, control the amount that they get. You meet a lot of older people who complain about sleep changes as they progress. Any questions about this? Jenner, Heart CIT Echo. My parents both retired last year. I'm just curious, their sleep habits changed a lot. It just seemed like it was associated with them retiring. I bet, right? So we have these things that kind of mediate um, our day, daily schedule, right? And as a society, certain times we get up and certain times we go to bed, and that certainly seems to follow a pattern with a nine to five job. And once you lack that sort of structure of, I need to be here at this time, so therefore I need to wake up at this time, um, 
really, unless there's other structured activities they have throughout the day, things can change a lot. So you'll meet a lot of older folks who watch the nine o'clock news and then that's their cue to go to bed, right? Um, and they might not have done that when, I don't know, when they were younger or taking care of children. So yeah, it does, it definitely changes. Hi, Trilla, APD. Um, we've used the term with kids sometimes as being overtired, mm -hmm. where you know they're exhausted, but they won't go to sleep. Is that one of the external factors? Absolutely, right? And especially for, for infants, for, you know, for newborns, for infants, for children, um, they depend on a bit of a routine, of a sleep hygiene routine that's mediated by adults in their life. Because my kids would just be awake. If, if I didn't say, hey, it's bath time and bedtime, they would just be up. Um, but eventually, that would that would be a real, a real problem. Um, so yes, it's 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 definitely requires a bit of um, I don't know adults teaching them the the practice. Of, and you'll meet a lot of people in our clinics too who've just never been taught. You don't do this, this, or that. Like you shouldn't do that in order to get a good night's sleep, right? But that definitely plays a role in behaviors as well. Those are great questions. So we kind of alluded to this, but these are some of the factors that can affect our sleep quality. So certainly medical illnesses, medications can change this, stress or emotional distress, thoughts about sleep problems or sleep patterns, what Jenny, what you're alluding to and that change of those, that can take time for a behavioral pattern to, to be set. Um, and then of course, lifestyle factors. So what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, um, and exercise, along with environmental factors, like noise and light. So we'll talk about all of these. So sleep hygiene, sleep hygiene is essentially just habits that are conducive to sleeping well on a regular basis. And we can change these. There are things that we can change about sleep. So lifestyle factors, let's talk about caffeine. Caffeine is a very powerful, obviously a readily available stimulant. I, last time I counted, how many Starbucks do you guys think we have in Albuquerque? 35. Yeah, that's close. That was like the last time that I looked around at this there's a lot, there's available everywhere, right? And it's found in lots of different products. So coffee, obviously tea, cocoa, chocolate bars, sodas, energy supplements. Um, you wanna make sure you're reading the labels of what you're consuming. And in order to maintain healthy sleep at night, you wanna avoid any caffeinated beverages or foods four to six hours before bedtime. I tell my patients to have a noontime cutoff. If you're wanting to go to bed around 9, 10 p.m., noon is probably where you need to stop. That's good advice, thank you. On, on which continent does he have to stop at yeah. <laughs> Which time zone are we talking? If you're complaining about sleep quality, it should stop it. So um, you think about caffeine, not only how we know how it interacts with adenosine, our natural sleep drive neurotransmitter, uh, but it also works as an antidiuretic, right? So it makes us urinate a lot. So you can imagine if somebody is you know, using caffeinated products, not only are they impairing their natural sleep drive, but they're having to pee a lot. You have to get up to do that unless you want to pee yourself at night. So, so I, I had a woman in residency who presented with her primary complaint as being insomnia, and when I took her caffeine history, she was consuming two of the liter um, bottles of soda every day. I was like, not do like, okay, let's start there before we throw a medication at you. <laughs> so I like this picture because it kind of shows you in, on average what's in what. Um, a reminder. Um, but this one I like even better because these drinks are more popular. Has anybody ever tried Wired? Wired 505? It's got our zip code. I mean, our area code. Yeah, I haven't either. 
Um, but look at Starbucks brew coffees. Look at that venti. And what do you imagine the FDA puts as a limit of how many milligrams we should have? It's definitely 400. <laughs> how many milligrams a day should you have of caffeine? Isn't it 400? No. Oh my God. <laughs> Cut that in half. It's 200. Yeah. So there you go with your venti Starbucks brewed coffee. And nothing against Starbucks here, but it is just brewed stronger. So you can think if you, if you brew your own coffee at home, you see a little bit down the mid-range there, it's about 100. Um, one of my colleagues, Swala Abrams, who we're fortunate just joined Presbyterian, she um, one day gave me a bang energy drink. <laughs> and I have to tell you guys, I, caught, I, I had been giving this lecture for some time. I, I did not read the label. I drank the entire thing and then went home and cleaned my entire house because <laughs> it was 350 milligrams of caffeine. It was awful. I thought I was having a then I'll just say that's like the preferred drink among law enforcement officers. Just take it easy, guys. Just take it easy. Among you. you. Among <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a lot of caffeine. So um, obviously the FDA puts out limitations on things. Some people, they develop a tolerance to caffeine. But if you are having trouble with sleep, start here. Start with caffeine. Okay. Okay, so nicotine is also a CNS, a central nervous system stimulant. It's kind of found in a lot of things as well, right? It, it speeds up our heart rate, raises blood pressure, um, and you know, psychostimulants themselves can change our brainwave activity, and that's associated with wakefulness. That, that's you know, really helpful for a lot of people. That's why you meet chronic smokers, chronic nicotine users who need that cigarette within 30 minutes of waking up, right? Um, but even the withdrawal itself during a normal sleep amount of time can cause awakening. So just a few hours, because nicotine half-life is very very short, so a few hours without nicotine for somebody who's dependent can stimulate a withdrawal process. So same thing, if you if you are using nicotine products, um, most of your doctors would recommend that you um, consider you know cessation techniques, but if you are using them and having trouble with sleep, uh, you'd want to avoid nicotine products about an hour to two before, before sleep, okay? And alcohol. So <clears throat> Alcohol, while it helps us to fall asleep, actually profoundly disrupts sleep and can cause really restless sleep. So um, it's so horrific, meaning that it you know helps you to feel sleepy. Right? A lot of people will have that nightcap, is what they call it. But it leads to frequent arousals, and it can actually fragment your sleep for the second portion of the night. So you can end up not getting as great of sleep. Um, it's also a respiratory depressant. And in long-term use, and certainly with people who have a larger body habitus, can be very dangerous um, for sudden death. It's related to you know, respiratory suppression. Um, and it can also contribute to nightmares. Certainly when we're thinking about alcohol dependence and the withdrawal from such, we, have, we see a lot of issues with, with sleep and reestablishing a normal sleep schedule. And so just like those persons who I'm treating who are newly sober from methamphetamine, new sobriety with alcohol, disruptive sleep is one of the, the biggest complaints that these patients have. And it's really just time for their brain to heal for that to get better. Um, so, you know, if you're one to enjoy alcohol with meals, avoid alcohol about two to three hours before bedtime. You're not going to see this, and certainly avoid to excess, and you're not going to see this change to your sleep pattern. Okay, and then diet. So we know hunger itself can cause wakefulness, um, and a light snack before bedtime can, can sometimes aid in not only falling asleep, but staying asleep well, and so that's what 
you think about kind of what we do for our children, giving them a warm glass of milk and maybe a cookie and a nice bath, and uh, you know that, that all makes sense to me now. So um, going to bed too full after a large meal can also cause wakefulness. You can have a lot of digestion and heartburn. You're going from an upright to a recumbent position. And certainly with all the foods that I love here locally and the spice, um, that can cause a lot of issues with heartburn. Dieting itself can have an impact on sleep. So there are you know, stimulants that some people like to use to, to lose weight, but obviously that, that changes sleep quality. And then also too rapid of weight loss can lead to broken sleep. So we see people who are you know, post-surgical interventions um, who have this as a complaint as well. Okay. That being said, excessive weight, being overweight or obese can impact sleep as well. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about pathological forms of insomnia. So that's sleep apnea or snoring issues. Okay, lifestyle factors. Um, what we think about exercise. So we know that this improves the quality of our sleep. And you hear all the time, three times a week, 30 minutes, right? Um, but there are times that are best times to exercise in terms of um, a normal sleep schedule. The best time is either in the morning, late afternoon, or early. You don't want to be exercising right before you're trying to go to bed. That's just not going to make sense for normal sleep onset. So those are all, you know, intrinsic factors. Let's talk about extrinsic factors, or so things that kind of can be in our environment. Um, so noise is one of them. Unexpected or sudden noises awaken most people. That's good. That's flight or flight. That's, you know, how we didn't get eaten by bears or whatever. We lift in case. So, um, but we sometimes might not be aware that we're waking up to sounds as well. You can have a, you know, a micro awakening. Um, you can get used to noises um, after a while. So people who live near train stations or airports, I lived right next to a train station in residency, and I, I, I just didn't hear it after a while. Um, but especially if that noise is low and relatively constant, it should be fine. Okay. So some people like noise machines. Some people like that constant you know, sound or the sound of a fan, and that, you know, that, that's fine as long as it's low and constant. Okay, um, room temperature definitely impacts sleep. So extremes, um, and I'm sure everybody in this room has, has experienced this. I am not a camper because of this. I just, like, I can't, cannot be in a hot tent. Mm -hmm. But um, it, hot rooms can cause restlessness, more nighttime awakenings, less dream sleep, whereas a cold room can also make it difficult to fall asleep and cause more vivid dreams as well. So optimum room temperature is about 64. Pull that out at your next argument with... <laughs> Somebody about room temperature. Can I take a picture of this slide for my wife? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I hope I can settle some marital debates here. Um, and so again, you know, thinking about what we do for our children, setting somebody up for a nice night of sleep, a warm bath about two hours before bedtime can promote sleepiness, and recognizing that our own body and our own internal system regulates our temperature as well. <clears throat> so let there be less light, honestly. In healthy individuals, light intensities, very, very low levels. So daylight is 10,000 lux. That minuscule amounts of that can lead to inhibition of melatonin. So kind of alluded to this substance, um, our pineal gland in our brain produces this substance. It's an endog endogenous um, substance that helps to regulate our circadian rhythm. So the minute that light stops hitting our retina, our eye, our brain starts releasing melatonin, and that helps to um, promote sleep. It's also sold over the counter. Um, so some people, when maybe they're coming back from, um, or they have a sleep-wake shift from being overseas or you know, coming off of night shifts, they'll use melatonin for a few days to help get back on that regular sleep schedule. 
but light can definitely change that. Um, light can also phase shift or cause you to have the increased latency of sleep. It can also result in insufficient rest or then in hormonal impairment. Hormonal impairment. So this is um, basically a map of the U.S. and Mexico at night as seen by satellite. And the red and yellow colors represent up to 200 times the natural level of light. It's called light pollution. Anybody ever heard of that before? No. The New Yorker for sure has. So <laughs> this is where you know blackout curtains are really beneficial for people. And certainly for those of you who work at night and have nighttime shifts, it's really hard to sleep during the day, right? Um, and this is in part related to it. Now let's talk a little bit about blue light, okay? This is a problem of our times, and certainly for adolescents. I'm, I am very guilty of it though too. So smartphones, any type of screen, they emit a bright blue light so that you can see them even in the brightest of Albuquerque, New Mexico you know, days. Like you can change that light now, but it's very, very bright blue light, okay? And at night, when you have an adolescent laying in bed, texting or Facebooking or whatever, WhatsApping, um, your brain gets really confused by this light. And that's all mediated by the melatonin process that I just explained. So you, your brain has the input from the retina of the blue light and changes the amount of melatonin that's produced. So it really has impacts laying in bed with the phone. So when your sleep position or PCP tells you to not have screens in the bedroom if you're complaining of insomnia or putting your phone in another room, there's a purpose for it. Even though I do use mine for an alarm, so it's pretty trusty. So we talked about that. There are blue light filters. Um, pilots utilize these as well. Um, some, they're not really all that, they're not that cool on your phone, but they, they you know, if your phone is necessary for your job and um, you find yourself having trouble with sleep, that's an option for you, okay? And then just a bit about sleep work, uh, shift work sleep issues, right? So working nights or irregular shifts, which I think comes up for you all a lot. Um, some tips for you. You want to avoid frequently rotating those shifts, right? So like we as humans just don't do well doing three nights on, three days off, and then maybe trying to shift back to a daytime schedule and then, you know, a week later doing night. It just doesn't work that way. So you want to avoid frequent rotations. Uh, oftentimes you don't get to choose. Maybe you have to do the nights for if that's you, you want to keep your workplace bright. You want to avoid bright light on the way home. So wearing glasses and avoiding the tendency to do all of the normal business hours, errands. I did this a lot in residency. I would get out of the hospital at 7 a.m. after being there for 12 hours and be so excited to go to the grocery store. And I go and like an hour and a half later, I'm still not asleep and I have to work that night. So it's really easy to do, but you know, avoid running errands. And then just maintaining that sleep-wake schedule as much as that is for you. Um, asking family to limit any distracting things, noise, visitors during the day, and then using blackout blinds or heavy curtains. Okay. If that pertains to you, there are some things that you can do. It's, it's difficult. Any questions about this? Keep going. So I, basically, in order to sleep well, you want to consolidate both those extrinsic and intrinsic factors. Eat healthy, use alcohol to a moderate or minimal use, get exercise, get regular sunlight, close that retina to regular sunlight, the sunscreen. Keep the regular sleep schedule, <laughs> limit your caffeine, okay, Ben? And then set your bedroom up for success in all the ways that you should for success. Matt used to you know, fixate on that. 
Okay. So that's the end of normal sleep. What questions have come come up about what normal sleep is and other questions? Ben Melinda's APD, maybe this is uh, in the next presentation, but I've like, uh, reviewed literature and heard podcasts about this sleepless elite, mm -hmm. about these people that can function relatively normally with two to three hours of sleep. Is that an actual thing, or are they just They're struggling lying. through one? Okay. Yeah, President Trump is lying. He says he sleeps <laughs> five hours a night. So there's nothing more special. We might have variations, right? Like, you might need six hours, Ben, and I might need eight. Everyone has a, you know, a standard amount, and we'll talk about this a little bit about how much everyone needs. Uh, that might vary to some extent, but um, in Japan, actually, right now, there are considerations about um, workplace restrictions because we have younger people in that country who, from a societal perspective, have a lot of pressure to succeed, and the thing that they are taking out of their life is their sleep, and there's a number of, but their suicide rate has jumped. Um, it's very common, and in fact, it's it's interesting. It's um, a sign of people respect when you fall asleep um, in public places because it's a sign that you're working really hard. And for a society that values that, um, you know, everyone accepts it. Whereas I think you know, there's certain sub you know, subways or other trains here that when people fall asleep, it's, it's fine. But wasn't there a woman in Canada who was recently left to fall asleep in a, a plane? Did you guys hear about that? She like, fell asleep on a plane and nobody woke her up, and she just woke up on an empty plane on the tarmac. So, um, so, so, so the sleepless elite are, are, are definitely fooling themselves, or they're using a psychostimulant and they're going to pay for it later. So, they're drinking things. <laughs> oh, my sure APD. Doesn't some of the sleep aids have alcohol in it, like menthol and stuff? How's that different than? Yeah, good question. So, so NyQuil in general, um, of the super the superfix that it has in it, um, it can it can be definitely abused, right? Um, and it's not meant to be taken on a regular basis. None of them are. So NyQuil, I think, was first marketed to help you to sleep um, during periods of illness. Um, and we see this a lot. We see people who are either abusing NyQuil for the alcohol, minuscule alcohol content, or the diphenhydramine, the Benadryl in it. Um, anything can be abused, um, but from in terms of uh, in terms of those over-the-counter products, those are not meant to be taken for long periods of time. That's a good question. What other questions? Okay, well let's let's talk a little bit about sleep disorders then. Is there a chat question? Yeah, um, one question. Mm -hmm. um, from Sergeant Amy Sudler, is it safe to take melatonin on a regular basis? So you're going to meet a, a number of physicians who say yes and some who say no. So melatonin is an endogenous substance that our own brain produces. Um, it's not addictive. Um, it comes in a really yummy gummy formulation too. So a lot of people actually like it for sleep onset, especially if they have another a number of other things getting in the way, right? Like they are very anxious. They might be going through a period of time where they're waiting on a promotion or um, going through some other really difficult uh, stressor-related period in their life. And um, so in terms of the other, in terms of the prescription sleep aids that we use, melatonin I recommend to a lot of my patients. Are there ill effects? You know, I, I think you could find some doctors who would say you're changing the way that your sleep structure is produced. Theoretically, your your brain might downregulate the amount of its own melatonin that it produces, right? Um, and so you could be you could become not dependent in terms of like a 
you have a problem with it, addiction, but you might have trouble if you ever stop. There's not a lot of research on melatonin and its long-term use in children and adolescents either. Um, so I, I just don't, I think that question, I don't know if I have an answer for that one, but it's not addictive and it's over the counter. It's fairly effective for a lot of people. So. What other questions? Let's talk a little bit about sleep disorders then. Okay, so we just talked about normal sleep. So what we're going to talk about the classific classification of sleep disorders, you'll hear a lot of things thrown around, but we're going to talk about um, you know, how we classify them. Again, reviewing that normal sleep structure and then defining specific sleep disorders. This is a busy slide, stick with me. So we have what we, know, what we term as insomnias. And the way that we define that is difficulty with sleep initiation, maintenance or staying asleep, and final awakenings that lead to an overall dissatisfaction with sleep quality. We have hypersomnias, or daytime sleepiness. We have parasomnias, which are undesirable physical or experiential events that accompany sleep. We have circadian rhythm disorders, and you know what that is now, but a recurrent or persistent misalignment between actual and desired sleep pattern. We have um, sleep-related breathing disorders, so that's things like obstructive sleep apnea. And then we have sleep-related movement disorders. So these are simple stereotype movements that disturb sleep. And things like restless leg syndrome. That's the overall categorization of sleep disorders. Chronic insomnia is a big deal. So 5 million PCP visits per year in the US. Can you guys think of some of the reasons why that might be in our society? Mm -hmm. Caffeine. Yeah, so we just talked about a couple of them, right? So it's like in our society that we drink caffeine. Um, and really the perception of insomnia, the, you know, somebody being disappointed by their sleep quality versus there being an actual medical issue is really difficult to tease apart sometimes. Uh, but about 68% of all patients report insomnia as an issue. 19% of those have chronic insomnia issues and overall prevalence is about 16%. So it's just a negative quality of life issue. And then just a comment, um, also drug use. Right, so again, psychostimulants, methamphetamine and cocaine being two of them, um, they, you will see people, and I'm sure you all have interacted with people who have not slept for three, four or five days. Um, medically speaking, it, it can become very dangerous. They can become disinhibited, not just the drug itself, right? But having not sleeping for three days heavily impacts your brain and your ability um, to, to interact with people, to communicate appropriately, to have a reaction time. So driving when they're doing that is very dangerous. So yeah, so absolutely, insomnia and extreme insomnia, the psychosomnians. Good question. There is a definition for it, okay? So again, so it's this difficulty in initiating sleep, maintaining, or maintaining sleep or waking up too early. And then the difficulty occurs despite adequate opportunity or circumstances for sleep. So you can see how quickly methamphetamine use, this criteria rules you out for chronic insomnia. You're not sleeping because you're using methamphetamine, okay? Even given your brain an adequate opportunity to sleep because you're using methamphetamine. Um, and then you have sleep-related daytime impairment involving one of the following. So fatigue and malaise, attention concentrational or memory issues, 
some change to how you're able to interact socially or with work, even with school performance. People can have mood disturbance or irritability is, is most common. Daytime sleepiness, uh, reduced motivation, energy, or initiative, and then very prone to errors, like at work, while driving, can be pretty scary. People can also have a lot of somatic symptoms, things like tension headaches or GI symptoms in response to sleep loss. I, I feel awful when I haven't gotten a good night's sleep. Um, and then worries or concerns about sleep, which unfortunately can then be cyclical. People worry about their quality the next night and might impair that next night of sleep. What's malaise? Um, fatigue, feeling, feeling just kind of blah, slowed down. Like if you ever had the flu, like that. Thanks. Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's the definition of chronic insomnia. We have other specific criteria, uh, essentially um, some just technical terms about how long you're asleep or how long it takes you to fall asleep and how long you're awake when you do fall asleep and then wake up again and how frequently it happens. So if it's happening more than three nights a week and lasting more than three months with this daytime impairment piece, you can meet criteria for chronic insomnia. Okay. Primary insomnia can include a number of things. There's psychophysiologic insomnia, uh, paradoxical insomnia, idiopathic insomnia, and then inadequate sleep hygiene. Okay, so it's you're really a sleep specialist or even a PCP is trying to tease apart these things. You can have comorbid insomnia. So you can have a primary sleep issue and then have any one of those other things that we talked about, um, either the first part of this lecture or the, the last lecture too. So it can be complicated. When we look at people who are living with a serious mental illness um, or substance use issue, a number of them have insomnia as a, as a diagnosis. This is an old slide because it's DSM-4, we're on five now. Um, but you can see that the majority of people who suffer from insomnia actually have no identified psychiatric issue. So just because somebody's not sleeping well doesn't mean that they have something mentally wrong. You know, but anxiety does match that. Anxiety disorders significantly impair sleep. Um, and I had been attending a residency who would say, you never really diagnosed, you never saw anxiety disorders until your third year when you were working in clinic. And it's because we weren't looking for them the first and second year when we were working in patient. There were other prominent psychiatric symptoms that were present, uh, but anxiety disorders are very, very common and, and awful for sleep. Mm -hmm. Question about that, Ben Wonders with APD. So sometimes the medications for anxiety uh, include benzodiazepines. How mm -hmm. does that affect your sleep? Greatly, and especially in long-term use. So benzodiazepines work on the GABA receptor in the brain, which is the same receptor that alcohol works on. So in long-term use, and especially withdrawal, we see the same pattern where people have greatly disrupted sleep, and then that makes them anxious, and that feeds into a cyclical pattern. And insomnia with somebody who's chronically been taking benzodiazepines is very, very dangerous. Same thing with some of this, what we call the Z drugs. So you probably heard of like um, Lunesta, Ambien, all of them, their generic names start with a Z. So we call them the Z drugs. Um, and they work slightly differently, but, but also people, when they use them, become addicted to them or chronically use them, can still have some of those same problems. Good question. So primary versus comorbid insomnia. It's like we're looking for two separate things, right? Is it that white horse or is it that whatever black donkey? But it's usually this like combination of them <laughs> from the rear end. <laughs> <laughs> so how much sleep do we need, right? The answer is for you, it's sufficient amount to feel alert, refreshed, and avoid falling asleep unintendedly during waking hours. 
So maybe you have the elite down there at four hours, but look how small of a percentage of the population that is. I don't think Trump's that special to be in the five range, but on average for us, it's about six to, to nine. Okay. Um, there's something, and I'll show you a scale of it, it's called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. And it essentially tests just how sleepy you are. And I'd encourage all of you to, to take this test, just Google it later, Epworth Sleepiness Scale, and see what your daytime sleepiness is. So it rates a number of situations, maybe you know, passenger in a car, um, sitting in a dark room, you know, sitting in a meeting, how likely it would be that you would fall asleep. And the higher that number, the more sleep deprived you are. Um, so it might be an indication that there need to be changes that you make. Okay, so hypersomnia is this sense that daytime sleepiness, um, there's daytime sleepiness not caused by disturbance in nocturnal sleep or a misalignment in the circadian rhythm. Um, it's really the inability to stay alert or awake during major waking episodes, and it results in unintended lapses into sleep. So something like this is narcolepsy. Has anybody ever known someone living with narcolepsy? So very impairing, very, very impairing. There's a number of documentaries of people who live with it, but essentially they fall asleep, they unintend, like just in the middle of a meal, in the middle of a date, in the middle of work. Most people, if they're untreated, aren't able to drive. It's very impairing. Um, Menstrual-related hypersomnia is mediated by hormones, um, and then hypersomnia is related to a medical condition or drug use. So an example of this for us might be hypers hypersomnia related to major depression. It's most typical for someone going through a major depressive episode to have difficulty with sleep. There's a subset of the population, about 20%, that present with hypersomnia, so sleeping 12, 14, 16 hours a day. So here's that upward sleepiness scale. And it shows you those situations, sitting and reading, watching TV, blah, blah, blah. So I encourage you to take that test later. Um, see where you are in terms of sleep deprivation. So the parasomnias, these are characterized by undesirable or physical, uh, physical or experiential events that accompany sleep. Um, it can have be abnormal sleep-related movements, emotions, perceptions, dreaming. It's really considered disorder of arousal and sleep stage transition, so going from one of those stages to another. Um, and it can, you know, there can be different manifestations of that through the central nervous system or autonomic nervous system that changes our skeletal muscle activity. And those are classified as occurring either during rapid eye movement or non-rapid eye movement sleep. So this is things like sleep eating, sleep driving, sleep texting, very, very common behaviors for people taking a specific drug called Ambien or Zolpidem. It's one of those Z drugs. If you ever want to have some fun, go to Reddit and read what people do when they take Ambien. So bizarre. Um, but, but terrifying too, from a legal perspective, what you all do, there have been some really strange cases that have been brought forth and then you know, entered in as kind of like cases that you know, set precedent for others about what people are accountable for when they're taking a drug like this that has very odd behavioral manifestations. So one of my favorites is a woman buying like 20 or 30 cat, just like cat themed um, shower curtains on Amazon and had no, she just had no recollection of that. And they showed up at her door and sure enough, awesome. 
she had ordered them. <laughs> so, um, this is also where you know sleepwalking can happen, and that happens about for four percent of adults. More common in children, about fifteen to twenty percent of children. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's not really just limited to walking. You can have a number of behaviors it's seeing. So, you know, sometimes a child will get up, seem calm. They might even walk awake. It's pretty weird when it happens. That's different from a night terror. Those are also common for children. And that's what it sounds like. They rapid heartbeat, sweating. They're disoriented. They're screaming. Um, it's pretty frightening. More so for the parents than the child doesn't remember it. I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, ben APD. So you're saying this is different than what was mentioned earlier, which is normal, the sleep talking? Sleep talking can be normal, right? When, when you're going from the you know, awake stages to that, that like slow wave beta, um, beta waves, that can be normal. And, and by that, I mean like muttering a few things. It wouldn't be sustained, right? Um, some people, that's just, that's, that's part of them falling asleep. Also, why is Ambien still prescribed? <laughs> yeah, it's really meant to be short-term. A, a lot of sleep specialists would want to be utilizing it for a specific sleep issue, and unfortunately, we as physicians, when a new medication comes out, we all get excited about it, and this one in particular has had some odd, I think there's been lawsuits against the company, too. You know? So it's not just physicians, like, experimenting on no, the No, no, I know you always think that, but... Um, the sleep disordered <laughs> eating behavior with Ambien is very strange, too. People will make, like, make and then eat an entire pie or pizza um, and be very distressed when they wake up and like who ate that pizza that i bought you know like and it was them so again if you need some entertainment go to reddit and check it out you guys might like it that's some sleepwalking stuff so those are parasomnias and again just to categorize things further because we love categories then the non-rapid eye movement sleep is sleepwalking night terrors confusional arousals whereas rapid eye movement sleep um, is you know different paralytic sort of things. Okay. okay, circadian rhythm disorders. These all share this common underlying chronophysiological or uh, a difficulty with time basis. So it's this recurrent or persistent misalignment in the actual or desired sleep pattern. So this could be delayed or advanced sleep phase, regular sleep phase type, shift wake sleep type, or a jet lag type. So you didn't know that you actually had a circadian rhythm disorder when you came back from your trip to Europe, and you can tell people that. Those are, some of them are short, you know, time limited, when the brain, brain will recover and reset. Some of them, you know, require ongoing care. Okay, and then we have the sleep-related breathing disorders. So these are characterized by disordered respirations, disordered breathing during sleep. Um, and we have what are called central apneic disorders, apneic meaning not breathing, uh, where the respiratory effort diminishes or is absent in an intermittent or cyclical fashion, and that can be primary central sleep apnea or um, it within the head versus secondary central sleep apnea, so stuff like maybe being too, too large around your central area, okay? Obstructive sleep apnea is characterized by the obstruction of the actual airway which results in increased breathing effort and inadequate ventilation. So obstructive sleep apnea um, is, is very common in our society. Um, and here are the clinical symptoms that you might see for somebody who has undiagnosed OSA. So daytime, it's fatigue, daytime sleepiness, unintentional sleep episodes or falling asleep when they didn't mean to, 
early morning headaches is a, a cue too for, you know, for, for, for physicians to maybe explore this a little bit. Poor motivation, concentration, low mood, and decreased libido. So some of those really overlap with depression, don't they? Yeah. Um, so that whenever I hear early morning headaches, this is what I'm thinking. And then nighttime, you don't hear loved ones saying you snored all night, or they witness the, the absence of breathing, they witness the apneas. Uh, they wake up choking or gasping, feeling very unrefreshed, having nocturia or having to urinate at night, dry mouth, and again, decreased libido. So fun in the libido area. Um, what this looks like. Can I just get a quick of question? Of course. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, uh, um, you said not waking up. I've, I've, I've seen or heard of people that slept for like 10 or 12 hours and they wake up and they're still tired. Is Absolutely. That, that's yes, and I'll show you why they've been asleep for, they've been asleep for 10 or 12 hours, but they haven't been, and you'll see why, okay? So here you're, you're basically seeing, uh, you know, a, a person in a recumbent position, how most of us sleep. Um, you have sleep onset, our muscles relax, that's associated with the various stages of our sleep schedule, or our sleep um, stages. Right? But then with some people, their airway can collapse, whether it's because they're overweight um, or they have really large tonsils. Uh, for a variety of reasons, their muscles relax and then the airway collapses. So airflow stops and then your body says, hey, you need to breathe to be awake. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake you up, I'm gonna wake your brain up. And then the airway's restored, but yet your, you know, your cycle of sleep has been disrupted. So this is an example of a hypnogram, um, basically what a sleep specialist would be looking at um, if you were to get a sleep study. And so they have all those wires on you, right? And um, what they're looking at in those top few areas are um, EEG probes. They've got a couple on the chin, the one that says chin one and two is probes around the chin area. Um, and then you, you can see a little bit farther down um, the snore area, the green is measuring the sound that's being emitted along with um, pressures coming from the thoracic or abdominal muscle cavities. And at the very bottom you see SpO2s, that's measuring how much oxygen someone's getting. So you can see when there's that first dip, the very, the very lowest line, you have an arousal with a snore and a little blip um, with the chin moving and then you know, an arousal, okay? So that happens wherever those green snores are or the dip in oxygen, it's all related to that. So this is just a couple of seconds, okay? Oops. This is what it looks like over an entire night. And look at all those micro arousals. Okay, so this one's not sleeping. We're gonna try this. I have another way of showing that too, and I think you guys will be able to see it in a little bit better of a way. But right. um, have to change the sound system at all. This is basically to show you that arousal. Okay. 
There's not a fan. You see his thoracic cavity at times. He's got sheets over him, but you can see that his body is trying to push air. All right, he's not breathing right now. He's trying. And there you go. Microarousal. His eyes open a little bit. And he gets more breath. But he's going to do that thousands of times over the night. So it doesn't matter if this guy sleeps 10 hours or 20 hours or 30 minutes. His brain's not getting restless sleep. And you can see, ooh, we don't want to play that. <laughs> um, you can see the size of his neck too, right? That was part of it for him. Maybe for other people who have um, obstructive sleep apnea, it has nothing to do with, the, whoops, um, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with maybe their tonsil size, okay? Your question, then. I do. It okay. said that his heart stopped for 10 seconds. Is that uh, accurate? I don't know. We didn't have the hypnogram on it. It's YouTube, so probably not. But is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. scary. And people can die of it. Okay, so um, so how do we treat um, how do we treat obstructive sleep apnea? Well, we have something called a CPAP, which essentially acts as a respiratory splint. I'm sorry, guys. Um, oh. Okay, just a little machine and some tubing and a well-footed mask <laughs> that makes you look and sound like that. Just kidding. Um, the technology has gotten a lot better. Um, see, so depending on patient preference, um, the full facial masks are pretty intrusive, but um, some of the technologies come along, so it's just nasal nasal cannula, nasal prongs. But it acts as a mnemonic splint. It's the first um, choice of treatment. If you can imagine, this is difficult to get patients to do until they get their first refreshing night of sleep. Um, one of the first patients I diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea with, he returned to the clinic for his month follow-up, and he was a different human being. He had been trying all sorts of things, medical marijuana, Every drug that he could, he had tried in you know, the first month of using his CPAP. His depression resolved. Um, he was doing better at work. His relationships were working for him. So um, it was really life-saving, I think life-altering for him. But the long-term compliance is about 50 to 75%. I think there's room to improve in making these more comfortable. So this is another way of looking at this. This is a hypnogram over an entire night. And this is what you would do in a sleep study where you're doing the sleep stage at the top. And then an intervention using a CPAP at the second half of the night. So you can see um, this green is variation of heart rate. This uh, black is oxygen desaturation here, um, these dips. Um, and then these ethnic events are occurring in red um, in the waking periods of time here, okay? Arousals here. And then the snoring down here. So this is somebody that's not treated. Look at how many times they're waking up. They're just awake the whole time. And then you, um, you introduce the CPAP and you titrate it to the appropriate pressure, this black area here's pressure. Um, and you get them to a stable pressure that works for them and look, look how their brain didn't wake up the rest of the night. So it's pretty remarkable. You can, you can also see 
Up at the top, we've got our sleep stages. And once you initiate and titrate the CPAP to a good level, they weren't getting any rapid eye movement sleep in this stage. And here in the red is rapid eye movement sleep after the CPAP. Does anybody in the room or in the network know somebody who uses CPAP or has had that intervention? Yeah, it's fairly common and life-saving for a lot of people. Okay, and then lastly, the sleep-related movement disorders. So these are simple stereotype movements that can disturb sleep, restless leg syndrome being the most, um, you know, most common. And it's this complaint of strong or nearly irresistible urge to move the legs. And that occurs, it occurs at an evening and night, and it's relieved by walking or movement. Um, and then also periodic limb movement disorder. So sleep-related leg cramps can occur, and then sleep-related bruxism. Does anybody have a problem with that? Bruxism is teeth grinding, yeah. To get to have those really nice um, dental guards. Yeah. Um, and it's common and can be really awful for your teeth, your dentist will will pick it out Im immediately. There's also a substance in our community that causes bruxism too, though. The water? Ding, 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 methamphetamine. Yeah. Methamphetamine. So when we think about methamphetamine and how it changes uh, a person's dental hygiene, it's multifactorial. So it's not only that they're not thinking to brush their teeth because they're kind of busy being high, but they're also grinding their teeth. Um, and there's decreased salivary production too. So the thing that kind of keeps our gums and teeth so healthy is uh, salivary the production of saliva and that's decreased with methamphetamine too. So, I have a question from the network. Sure. Um, Lieutenant Kevin Napoleon, so could a CPAP be beneficial for everyone or just people with apnea? Just people with uh, obstructive sleep apnea. That's a great question, right? But like if you don't have a reason to stop breathing, and most of us don't, um, then a, a CPAP is a, a mnemonic splint's not going to help. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of like putting a, a, a board splint on your arm if you don't have a fracture, right? It's not going to help. Now, there's this like kind of strange phenomenon right now, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, of people who are deliberately um, um, taping their mouths closed at night. Um, and there's no scientific evidence behind it. Um, hopefully, they're, they're wanting to promote nasal breathing, which they say results in less bad breath and less difficulties with upper respiratory symptoms, but there's just no evidence behind it, and it's dangerous, right? Um, we are able, to, thankfully, to breathe from our mouth and our nose, and sometimes when you have a nasal infection, it's a good thing, right? Otherwise, you'd stop breathing, but there's no reason, you know, for somebody to, to take their mouth closed. Not medical. I had a question that was written in. Um, what are the effects of uh, antidepressants on sleep, like Effexor? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in terms of a sleep study, there can be changes to the way somebody's, um, you know, their different stages and the quality of those stages or how much time they spend in each of those stages are with Effexor or other, so Effexor is an SMI or other SSRIs. Um, and most of the time, a lot of good sleep specialists, I've heard this before, I don't, I'm, this is not my area of expertise, but um, sleep specialists say that they can pick out which patient is on the SSRI or SNRI. Um, but in terms of you know, pathological changes, it's, 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 there's, there's no change to the um, sleep structure in that regard. It's really the opposite. We, we sometimes utilize medications in those classes to target insomnia related to depression or related to anxiety. Um, so for me, when I'm choosing a medication, maybe belonging to the SSRI class, um, there's a lot of commonalities between them, right? 
Um, but one in particular, Paxil, is really, really sedating. So if somebody's sleep quality is frustrating for them, I might pick that one over another. Now, that being said, Paxil is also teratogenic. It causes birth defects for women. So you have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits of the patient in front of you and the symptoms they're, they're, they're complaining of and, and picking the medication. Okay, so take home points. Sleep is a crucial part of life. We want to allow adequate opportunity to sleep. Sleep disorders are common and they can affect the quality of life and lead to increased risks of disease. And we really want people to be proactive in seeking evaluation for any sleep difficulty and that treatments are accessible and can, and can relate in life altering or saving changes. So that's what I have prepared for you guys today. Any questions? Sergeant Dussel. Um, so, I thought you were um, saying something about if you take a nap, like how long is too long you need yes. in order to get a good night's rest still. Thank you for reminding me. So, um, every person's a little bit different again when we think about the total amount of time somebody's going to need. Um, but if you do like naps, about 30 minutes should be the limit. Anywhere above, you know, when you get into to an hour greater than an hour territory, you're certainly going to see a change to your nighttime sleep. For some societies, that's fine, right? Where siestas are a norm. In Spain, it's normal to go and have a glass of wine with lunch and go home and, and sleep for two hours. But then they also stay out and eat dinner at 10 p.m. So, um, so I think you know if somebody likes taking naps, um, but then complains of ability to sleep at night, we always have to have a difficult discussion about how they're going to make a change or what's more important. Are the naps more important? Um, is the nighttime sleep more important? It's a balance. And monitors with APD, can you get too much sleep? I've read that there are health consequences for sleeping too much. So the quality is just going to be impaired, right? Like you, you always worry, especially in like college age, adolescent, young adults, um, the idea of getting 12, 14 hours. Some parents are really distressed when they have an adolescent who's sleeping all day or in their bedroom all day or like, what are they doing and why do they need too much sleep? Adolescents definitely need more sleep than that, but there is, you know, the sleep quality can definitely be impaired, right? Um, and is likely a sign of something else. Right? Somebody needing to sleep 10, 12 hours when they're an adult is likely an indication that something else is going on. That either the quality of sleep that they're getting is abnormal or um, there's a comorbid depression or some other medical issue. Um, a sleep specialist would definitely say you can get too much sleep. Um, and there's a particular type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy that you taught about. There's CBT for insomnia. The VA did a lot of research on this, and there's a really cool free app called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, and they teach a lot of these behavioral interventions. Um, and so they, you know, in any good CBT therapy, we talk about the structure of a day and um, setting yourself up for how much time do you need to sleep? And then if you're finding that you're in bed longer than that, why are you in bed then? Really, a lot of, of you know, physicians will say, use the bedroom only for sleep and sex. Don't use it for watching your Netflix show. Don't use it for, you know, work. Don't use it for reading. What are the questions? Mm -hmm. um, Jennifer Hart, CIT Echo, do you have any other tips if some of these other factors that could be impeding sleep? Um, if, you're, if you're doing everything right and you still can't sleep, but maybe you're just anxious, like yeah. something yes. else you could try? Great question. So 
if you have really given it a go with caffeine intake and all of the you know, maintenance of a good sleep hygiene, and by that I mean behaviors take time to change. So you have to give yourself time for those things to change too, right? Like you can't expect to change those things, make your room the appropriate temperature, and then sleep great that night. Behavioral interventions take time. Um, but if that's the case and somebody, and it's very common for somebody who has anxiety to have difficulty with sleep onset, um, everything's quiet at night, right? And that's when our mind is loudest. And um, a couple ways that you might deal with that is um, what we call a brain dump. So somebody having like a piece of paper or a journal next to their bed and using that analogy, just dumping out all those worries on the piece of paper and then getting them to them tomorrow. For, for people who are busy and have stuff or maybe have a really busy day the next day, that can keep you awake, right? Like I have to do this, this, and this. If you've ever prepared for a trip or taking an early flight, you can see how that could impact you. So writing those things down. Um, and then relaxation techniques, so deep breathing. Um, CBTI, the app, is really good. Also, there's a, an app called Calm, C-A-L-M. Um, I have no affiliation with any of these apps, but Calm um, has a number of deep breathing exercises. They also have some mindfulness and meditation for sleep onset. And one in particular that I like to talk to patients about who have anxiety and difficulty with sleep onset is something called uh, progressive muscle relaxation or paired muscle relaxation, where um, you consciously um, go from the top of your body to the bottom of your body and, and relax your muscles and more often than not I have patients tell me that they fell asleep before the, the exercise was even completed um, so those are two things to try those are free calm has a, a number of options that you can buy into don't buy anything on calm you don't like the, the ones that you can try that I recommend are all free yeah great question mm -hmm.